0: Over a year ago, I recruited three pharmacists who are about to start their journeys to becoming independent prescribers. I wanted a no-holes-barred account of what it was like to undertake the IP course, and they kindly agreed to document their experiences via audio diaries.
1: I do think I've come an awful long way from the beginning of the course. It has been extremely hard work, quite exhausting but knowing that I need to make sure that I just carry on and hopefully, come the end of June, have a positive outcome.
2: Although I am very, very stressed with the course, I could see everyone is feeling the same and we all have the feeling we're not gonna have a life in the next six months of the course, but that's fine, <laughs> that's, um, it was a choice to do it, no one made me do it.
3: I'm now recording this uh, post-exam and I think it all went okay. It is a bit scary completing an exam when you know that the pass mark is so high, Um, so uh, I hope I have done enough to pass the exam.
0: Rachel, Isabel and Aishita all had quite different experiences.
1: I have spent a week in a secondary care um, outpatient's dermatology department, which was extremely useful for my scope, which is in dermatology.
2: This last month has been a bit of a roller coaster for me with the IP course. I did have my third workshop uh, towards the middle of May, and it was really, really a stressful workshop because there was too much to cover, not enough time. And they left one of the most important part of the workshop to the end of the session.
3: I just can't believe now how close we are to the end of the prescribing course and and how six months is nearly over, it's just flown by so quickly. Uh, So far I think the work has been quite manageable.
0: And now they're all finished with the course, we can finally meet them. So the first question
1: is, did you pass the course? Yes, I did. Um, I passed back in end
0: of June. I found out on my birthday. This is Rachel. She's worked as a community pharmacist for over thirty years. <laughs> That's a nice birthday present, isn't it? It it was, yes.
3: And this is Aishita. I did. I did. So yes, we got our results. I think a month after submitting everything, um, and so but it just took a while to wait for GPHC to us on the register for it but yeah i did pass so good news congratulations well done thank you
0: she worked in a hospital pharmacy for several years before moving to primary care she now works as a senior clinical pharmacist in a primary care network which just leaves isabel who worked in a community pharmacy for 10 years before transferring to primary care so uh we haven't been
2: told a yet Are date yet uh we are guessing probably middle of november but that's
0: based on other years Isabel started her course a bit later than the others, so she's still waiting for her results, but I'm hoping she'll be able to send me an audio update before this episode goes live, fingers crossed. I'm Dawn Connolly, Senior Features Editor at the Pharmaceutical Journal. From 2026, all pharmacists will be independent prescribers when they first qualify, but that leaves a whole cohort of pharmacists already in the workforce, many of whom don't want to be left behind. I wanted to get the inside track on what motivates these pharmacists to undertake the IP course and how tricky it really is to do that alongside a demanding job and family life. For Rachel it was a big decision to go back to studying after so many years working as a community pharmacist. She was in her pharmacy when we spoke so if you hear a bit of background noise that's why.
1: Yeah I'd wanted to do it for quite some time but it was a struggle to get um a dpp um particularly if you work in community pharmacy um and then i had a um a pre-reg what they call trainees now um who did the course about five or six years ago and i kind of thought well if i ever need anyone to do prescribing she can do it for us there's no point in me doing it i'm quite old (laughs) been qualified for 30 years i kind of thought i'm You know, too old to start studying again. Um, But then they've obviously changed things so that trainees are going to come out being able to prescribe. And I thought, um, I've got a lot of experience and
0: why not do it? It was different for Aishita, who hasn't really stopped studying since she graduated from university. She'd already completed her clinical diploma as well as the CPPE primary care training pathway. And she saw the IP course as a continuation of her studies, the next logical step in her career.
3: Yeah, I did my clinical diploma and I think that gave me a really good base for my clinical knowledge. And then after that, I felt ready to do the IP. So I always knew I wanted to do it. Um, and again, for, for the same reasons, patient care and work, reducing workload for the other clinicians, it, it just makes sense to do it. And we have the knowledge and the competency to do it. Uh, but also another reason is that the university is becoming an IP is becoming an integrated course in university, so the new pharmacists are going to come out soon being an IP. So I think it is probably important in terms of being able to apply for jobs in the future that we do have IP behind us. IP training
0: was also the next natural step for Isabel after she, too, completed the CPPE pathway.
2: So this comes from a few years ago, actually. I've been working in community pharmacy for about 10 years since I moved to the UK. Then I decided I wanted to make a change so I moved to primary care a couple of years ago. So part of the contract was to go to the, to do the CPP pathway and then move into the prescribing course so that kind of like the progression I've done so I finished my pathway I was like I'm ready to continue studying
0: for a bit. There are currently around 50 universities offering IP courses around the UK. This might sound a lot, but in fact, all three of our pharmacists found it difficult to get a place and had to wait sometimes over a year before they could start the course. And if you want to get a much coveted government funded place, only certain universities offer these. Otherwise, the course fees alone are between one and a half and two and a half thousand pounds.
3: I think spaces can be a bit difficult. I know when I first applied to do IP, I got rejected because there wasn't enough spaces. And it's not just pharmacists who are applying for the course, it's so many different professions. Um, If you look at nurses applying as well, and there's so many nurses out there. So trying to get places can be difficult. Isabel also struggled to find a funded place.
2: So um, part of the contract was because it's an RS contract and um, it was a funded, a funded course. And that was a bit tricky as well, because there's only a small amount of places they offer for funded. So I didn't get into the
0: first cohort I applied, so I got into the next one. Between IP courses, the format can vary a lot. Some are completely remote, some are in person, and some are a mixture of the two. Some courses are exclusively for pharmacists, and some include other healthcare professionals. But they usually run over six months and involve a combination of teaching sessions, workshops and self-directed study. Assessments include a practical skills assessment known as an OSCE, or an Objective Structured Clinical Examination, as well as written exams and a reflective practice portfolio. Both Isabel and Aishita decided to do a fully remote course Ishita's course was provided by Coventry University.
3: It worked really well. I think for me it was really convenient because the university is about a couple of hours away from where I live. So it worked really, really well. Otherwise it would have been really difficult to go to work and attend and to university. I don't think the learning was any different. I think as long as you're engaged as, as a student, then it does work really well.
0: Yeah, and how, how did the OSCEs work that how
3: did that aspect work yeah it's different so I'm very used to OSCEs you go in you've got an actor there and you're doing a a scenario that you you have no idea what's going to come up but now this this is different so they just said uh, write a patient case that you came across so my um, IP course was in hypertension so I talked about a patient that I came in all the way from um, diagnosis all the way to treatment so it was sort of an essay I guess in a way so it's not not the usual OSCE at the University of Bath, where Isabel did her course,
0: they took a different approach to the remote OSCE, carrying it out over Zoom. Yeah, via Zoom. <laughs> yes. How did that go? Uh, well, <laughs> because we did have
2: a few practices doing the workshops with medical actors. Then we were kind of used just to look at the screen. But I mean, saying that, it didn't seem natural because you don't do that with patients on a daily basis. So um we couldn't even look, take our eyes off the screen because then they thought we were looking at something else rather than to the patient. So that, I don't know, it was a bit tricky.
0: Uh, we did it, but again, we haven't even heard whether we passed them or not. Rachel went for a mainly in-person course at the University of Portsmouth, where she attended weekly study days. But having that face-to-face time did add to the expense of the course.
1: Um, yeah, and there's travel... There's all sorts of extra things. If you if it's your own business, you've got to pay for a locum. Um, if you work for someone else, they might not be happy to have to pay for a locum. Um, so there are all these things to consider. There are some that are totally online, which might be beneficial for some people. But So we had a mix of face-to-face and online. And it was good to get to know people. It did give us that extra bit of support.
0: In order to get on the IP course in the first place, applicants need to identify a scope of practice on which to base their training and find what's called a DPP, a Designated Prescribing Practitioner. DPPs supervise the mandated 90 hours of practice needed to pass the course. They need to be an active prescriber in a patient-facing role. They might be a pharmacist, doctor, nurse or dentist and would normally have at least three years prescribing experience however finding a dpp is easier said than done
1: yeah it's not easy i mean i knew someone who was who was doing it for other people and i asked him and he said yes um but it's a lot of work they've you know you've got to be able to go and do consultations or them supervise you um so yeah um it isn't that easy i know someone on the course had like i think they tried it 100 people she said oh wow um and eventually found someone Mm. and then some had to change their dpps midway through which added to stress
0: for aishita and isabel who both work in primary
3: care it seemed to be easier That was quite straightforward yeah so i have a really good support network at work the gps are great Uh, and one of the gp partners he's always been my supervisor ever since i started so we've always having debrief sessions and then i did the cpp course and he was my supervisor for that as well so we just sort of continued with that i did want my lead manager to be the supervisor
2: but he had to be a prescriber for over three years so he didn't meet the criteria So then I just asked some of the GPs I get along with and I actually ended up with my clinical director being the supervisor, which was quite
0: nice. I was keen to get a course provider's perspective on what they are looking for in a DPP. So I asked Danny Bartlett, who teaches on the University of Brighton undergraduate and independent prescribing courses and is also a primary care network pharmacist and a DPP himself.
4: They have to be actively in a clinical role um I don't think it would be fair on the student if they're if they're not having a clinical role because if just like my examples of how that student's going to learn so if that student really wants to debrief after patients if you're not seeing patients how are you going to achieve that learning if they're just going to sit in a room and talk to them that's not going to achieve any of their learning outcomes um capacity is my biggest one really how many students do you have if that DPP for example is a GP they might have a foundation year trainee. They might have lots of other trainees. But even if that's a pharmacist prospective DPP, they might also have a couple of other pharmacists in their network that they're also supervising. So you need to make sure that they've got the capacity to do that.
0: Yeah.
4: What they currently practice in as well. So if their prospective student has got a scope of hypertension, cardiovascular disease, and the prescriber, uh, the DPP, works in dermatology, what's their exposure to cardiovascular disease going to be? It's not going to be very high at all. So that's part of the scrutiny is actually, it's not that they necessarily are a a bad DPP or not an appropriate DPP, it's just that their scope isn't appropriate at this point in time.
0: In terms of deciding on the scope of practice, Danny says it's important for applicants to consider how they'll be able to use their IP qualification, rather than only thinking about what their interests are.
4: What I'd say is one of my best tips of advice, you might be interested in a particular area, but actually think about does that apply to your role at the moment? Is it better to maybe think of about a different scope that will benefit your role, benefit the people around you, the patients around you? And then by all means, later in, later down the line, once qualified, you could broaden that scope within adequate training and things like that. So don't ring fence yourself with HRT and menopause if that's not actually something you encounter in day-to-day practice, because you're almost kind of gonna alienate the people that could potentially be your DPPs.
0: For pharmacists working in primary care, the scope of practice could be almost anything. Aishita, for example, chose hypertension, but she
3: was able to focus her training much more widely than that. Uh, So, well, my scope of practice was hypertension. um, And I chose that because I think it touches on loads of different clinical areas. But I think it's difficult to have a scope of practice when you work in general medicine and actually even though that was my scope of practice majority of my work was in just general medicine Um, my supervision time my essays everything MOSCI, it was all in different topics so it did give me that broad cover whereas I know that other universities universities like you to stick with specific topics Um, but I think this way is better because it's more relevant to my day-to-day job (music) So, once you've chosen your scope of
0: practice, secured a DPP and got a place on a course, what's it like to actually do it? Rachel and Isabel both found it tough to balance the workload around their day jobs.
2: It was quite hard, because uh, obviously I have all my appointments set up already. I have back-to-back appointments for the whole morning, then tasks, admin work and projects, meetings. So I really had to plan well in advance if I needed a day to shadow anyone in particular so they could block my ledger or at least have someone to to cover me on the day. So that was a bit tricky. And did you spend a lot of time outside of work on it, would you say? Yes, yes, loads, yes. I mean, I haven't had proper life for six months.
0: That's how I feel. Right. I guess that was tough then. You said you got a family and... Yeah, yeah, so I did spend days in the
2: library because I couldn't do anything at home because I've got a little one. Um, Obviously, I mean, I haven't been at home 24-7. I've done bits and bobs, but not like before the studying, if you know what I mean. Like I had to, like Sundays, I had to stay home, work, close the door and just get on with the work.
0: Rachel's son is grown up now, so she didn't have the same kinds of demands on her time outside of work as Isabel, but extracting herself from her community pharmacy was tricky.
1: I mean, I was quite lucky. I've had a supportive family. I have um, a son and husband who quite happily cook while I sat there and did work. Um, but not everyone's that lucky, and it's all those kind of things, not just what's happening at work, your employer might say yes you can have a day off to go to, the, to do the university but they're not going to say you can have another day off to do your assignments and your assessments and this that and the other. So it's very time consuming and if you haven't got that time that is a barrier.
0: Yeah. And you carried on working full time did you while, while in your community pharmacy while you yes, were Yes,
1: I did. <laughs> yes, it was it was it was quite tiring. Um, but I think if you, if you do it, you need, just need to be prepared that it is a lot of work and plan your time so I knew what I was going to do when, basically. Um, once I'd finished an assignment, I'd let myself have a weekend off.
0: Aishita was fortunate enough to have protected time for study and supervised practice
3: yeah so i think as part of the course you get a certain number of study days i think it's around 26 which works out about a day per week um so i had every wednesday off as a study day some of those so in module one you would have a a lecture to attend for those an online lecture for those wednesdays so that was fine and then in the second module, so the second half of the course, I would be able to use that time for my supervision time to complete my 90 hours. So it was protected time for me, but I could use it how I felt was best. Danny's
0: advice to manage the workload is for pharmacists to work out the overlaps between their prescribing course and their current role and make that work for them.
4: I think it, it leans into what your role currently looks like and how you can synergistically kind of amalgamate that role with the prescribing Course, because you don't want your role to stop dead, because then you're going to be coming to that role. Let's say you stop that role dead and then do six months intensively on the prescribing course. Six months' time, you go back to your role and you've kind of got to upskill yourself and you're kind of fighting two fires. You have to work out what the overlaps are in that workload. So I can't kind of give a fixed amount of hours because that will depend on what your role is. But let's say you work in general practice. And you're already running kind of clinics, um, but not as complex. You're wanting to get more more involved with more complicated patients. You need some supervision on your prescribing course with your DPP for that. It kind of works together with the role that you already have, right? So you can build the patients in. You can maybe more complex patients. So you can have a debrief with your T- with your DPP. So you need to work out what that what works for you.
0: I asked each of our pharmacists what were the most challenging aspects of the course. This is what Isabel had to say. Um,
2: I will say writing up the portfolio. I think is one of the toughest units in writing things, and that's what other people were saying as well. We did have to write tons of essays and tons of reflections for everything we did.
0: For Ishita, it was the exams
3: and essays. I think revising again was challenging. I haven't done that for a while. Preparing for an exam, that was definitely challenging. I think uh, the other challenging bit was when we had to write our essays. And for Rachel, it was getting into the right
0: mindset after so many years away from studying.
1: Initially, I think it was just getting my head around it all. I mean, going back to studying and being able to do the referencing and, and um, searching, I mean, when I... Was at university, there wasn't internet. You did it all through the library and it was all handwritten. I don't think, I mean, I did something on a word processor, but there certainly wasn't any uploading to a computer, so it's all those kind of things.
0: Despite all the challenges, all three of our pharmacists
3: have no regrets about taking on the course. But yeah, I think it will be really useful because I was doing it before I was initiating medications with the approval of GPs. So now I just don't have to um, bother the GPs with that. I can go straight to initiating prescriptions and that way prescriptions will go through quicker and patients have to wait less time as well. Um, but yeah, I think and, and then even though it's in hypertension, but I also do diabetes reviews and other cardiovascular areas. So I think it will be widely used in the, in the practice.
0: Yeah,
1: I'm happy how everything worked out. My husband would probably say I didn't need to put quite so much effort in, but I'm glad that I did what I did.
0: But Rachel stresses it's important that pharmacists are completely committed.
1: I think if you're half-heartedly thinking, "Mm, I'm not sure if I want to do it, it's a lot of work. As I say, not everyone passes. So if you're not fully committed, I would probably say don't do it, but it's well worth doing if you if you think it's something that you want to do.
0: Isabel is also in the no regrets camp, but there's a few things that she would have done differently to make life easier for herself. I'll say I think it's something quite useful to do and to have
2: and just give you more knowledge, experience, try to save time every day if you can, just to write things on the day that happens, because that's not mistake I did. I wasn't writing things on the day. So then it took me more time to remember what I've done. I think that's the main thing. And enjoy the course, because it's quite good. It is quite good. And the peers, they're very supportive. So just to make try to make connections with them.
0: In terms of future plans, Rachel intends to continue to do private consultations within dermatology and travel health. And she's already written her first prescription. I asked her how that felt. Yeah, it was. Um, it was quite exciting,
1: but it wasn't for anything exciting. I think it was for some malaria tablets, which obviously I've been doing on PGDs for quite a while. But I just did it as a prescription, the first one. Um, it took a little while to do for a dermatology um, prescription, um, which was quite exciting once I'd
0: done that. Rachel has also applied for her pharmacy to be one of the independent prescribing Pathfinder pilot sites, a programme that aims to test different prescribing models in community pharmacy. Danny points out that the learning doesn't finish the day pharmacists graduate from the course.
4: I think every day is a school day is is a good kind of mantra to live by. Once you're a prescriber, you don't know everything, even about the scope that you've kind of gone into. I think it's really important to recognise that. I think as pharmacists, we're fairly good at knowing our limitations and knowing kind of where that sits, but I think it's really important to carry on that journey, keep reflecting on that, realise what your learning needs are and how you develop them.
0: I asked Danny what he thinks are the barriers for pharmacists who want to become independent prescribers and what needs to change to smooth that path?
4: I think funding, I think there needs to be a lot more funded routes, if you like, so all of the schools that do a prescribing course should be funded and um, through NHS England, um, in my opinion. I think there's lots of paperwork needed for that, (laughs) but I think that should encourage more people going through, let's say, for example, CPPE, which is the 18-month pathway in primary care. Not all of the schools are funded through CPPE. Once you finish that pathway, you can't do it. So that, that for me, seems kind of a a barrier. Um, Second barrier is DPPs, Um, as we talked about. So finding a DPP, finding a good DPP is really important. Scope and relating it to practice, I think, is another barrier. So if I want to learn about if I if I want my scope to be cardiovascular disease, but I'm not in a cardiovascular disease role, then sometimes that's a a bit of a rate limiting factor to me actually being able to get this off the ground.
0: Having listened to Isabel, Ishita and Rachel's accounts and to Danny, I think there's a few key takeaways that pharmacists who are thinking about becoming independent prescribers need to consider. You need to be committed, it's a lot of work, by all accounts, and be aware that there might be varying levels of support within your workplace. Plan ahead, you may not get on a course straight away, especially if you want a funded place. Decide on a scope of practice that's going to fit with your current role, you can always expand on that later. Find a DPP who's going to have enough time to supervise you and who has the relevant experience. Apply for a course that's going to suit your circumstances, whether that's remote, in-person or hybrid. And finally, once you start the course, make every second count. Get organised, make notes at the end of every day and give yourself enough time to complete your supervised hours. Now, if you'll remember, we've been holding out to get Isabel's news about her results. And I kid you not, just as we were getting ready to record the final bits of this episode, we received a voice note from her.
2: Um...
0: So, I'm just gonna
2: open my email now, just two seconds. And uh, let's see, let's see what happens. Woo! It says, oh gosh, congratulations! I'm writing to let you know that you have provisionally passed the independent prescribing course. A wonderful result great work oh this is amazing
0: so yes so happy i can sleep tonight
2: and yeah
0: thank you. oh i'm so pleased for isabel and thanks to all three of our new independent prescribers for letting us be a fly on the wall for what must have been a really stressful period and thanks to danny for his brilliant insights and finally thanks to you for listening just before we let you go there's a couple of great resources i'd like to tell you about PJ is producing a range of new learning resources to support pharmacists, prescribers to develop their knowledge and skills in line with the Royal Pharmaceutical Society's competency framework for all prescribers. More on this coming soon, but we've included the links in the show notes. The Royal Pharmaceutical Society has also produced a range of practical guidance, resources and support to help you practise safely and confidently, whether you're taking your first steps to becoming a prescriber, need advice on how to find a DPP or you're already prescribing and now want to expand your scope of practice. RPS members can access these materials from the dedicated prescribing pages on the RPS website. We'll include a link in the show notes. If you're not already a member, you can join the RPS for the equivalent of just 60p a day. Just search RPS membership to find out more. The PJ Pod is brought to you by the pharmaceutical journal. The Official Journal of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. This episode was produced by Jeff Marsh and presented by me, Dawn Connolly, with support from Carolyn Whitware. That's it for this episode. Bye for now!